Welcome to Tech Talks, a podcast about the impact of technology on humanity. I'm Kirsten Martin, the director of the Notre Dame Technology Ethics Center, or what we like to call ND Tech. In these discussions, we discuss an important idea, paper, article, or discovery in tech ethics. And today, I'm so happy to be joined by Daniel Susser. Daniel is an assistant professor in the College of Information Sciences and Technology. A philosopher by training, he works at the intersection of technology, ethics, and policy. His research aims to highlight normative issues in the design, development, and use of digital technologies, and he's currently focused on questions about privacy, online influence, and automated decision-making. Today, we're going to take a deeper dive into your article in Surveillance in Society that's just recent, super short, but I really liked it, on data and the good. And I, well, I like the fact that we can get into the meat of it, but pretty much what I took you to be saying is that privacy law scholars and surveillance study scholars, which don't always operate, other people might not realize, but they kind of build on different areas and their goals are different. Um, Even though we might think of them as similar from the outside, they actually are very distinct. But they both talk about the broader implications of surveillance for individuals in society, but don't focus enough on what should be happening. So focusing on what shouldn't be happening, but not so much on what should be happening. And I didn't know if you could speak a little bit about that, both where they're focused now and where you think they should be focused. Yeah, thanks. So I mean, one, thanks for having me, Chris, and I'm really excited to be here. And I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed the piece. You know, it's just sort of as context, the short essay is part of a, like a dialogue series in surveillance and society. And so the idea was for a few pieces to sort of speak together on some kind of theme, really short sort of like provocation pieces. So that's the spirit in which I wrote it. Um, and the prompt was, the intersection of privacy law scholarship and surveillance studies scholarship. So that's where that focus came from. And um, I'm, you know, Scott Skinner Thompson at the University of Colorado invited me to participate. And so had me just sort of thinking about where these two different fields, which, as you say, sort of speak to similar issues often, but generally, usually coming from very different theoretical backgrounds and disciplinary perspectives, um, sort of what happens at the intersection of these two spaces. And like you said, I was just really struck as I was thinking about it by how much really amazing, trenchant, I think super important work is has been done and is being done to point out the kinds of harms that data collection and data-driven technologies can produce and to level, I think, really meaningful and like devastating normative critiques against these kinds of harms. But much less, um, I mean, there is some work, which I try to point to in the paper, and I'm sure we'll talk about, but just much less work that really tries to put forward an alternative vision for what these technologies can do for us. And I have to say, I mean, this is, I, I, I do not mean this piece as an, like an attempt to cast stones. I think my own work reflects the same kind of bias where I have been mostly focused on critique and less on putting forward a kind of substantive vision. And so in part, this is a kind of like a mea culpa. I, I want, I want <laughs> yeah. to be in my own work, be thinking about sort of yeah. how we can do this, do this more. I think for a lot of us, and I would say the same about my own work, you know, if I, when we both have written about manipulation, we both write about privacy. I think a lot of it is you see something wrong going on and you're like, oh, I want to enumerate why this is wrong and help out and explain these are the things that are wrong. And then you get to the end of the paper and then that's just it. Or maybe the the target is a, a different type of journal outlet where you're supposed to be designing perhaps, you know, regulation or policy that might be different. And I thought, I thought what's also interesting is you do a great job of identifying like why the field steer clear, you know, so why, like this is a commonality of surveillance studies and privacy law that we steer clear of 
enumerating what a good technology would look like, given the theories that I just used to explain why this went wrong. And some of it's like, it's just not the job of law to do that. These law professors were not brought up to identify, and the, and the law scholarship is not I, there to they're there to identify procedural norms that should occur within the law and not a design decision, which is really left up to me in a business school or you in an information school, right? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think bo- both of the things that you just pointed to were really like important as I was thinking through this piece. On the one hand, right, like I think the, the motivation for really focusing on diagnosing harms is completely understandable and I think justified in a lot of cases because there are so many of them and they are so incredibly um, worrying that, you know, it's, it's perfectly understandable why so many of us, I think, really hone in on that and think like, let's point out what these potential harms are and think about how we can mitigate them. Um, and then, yeah, the, the, the sort of middle part of the piece where I, it's like a bit speculative, but I, yeah, sort right, of, right. I identify what I imagine are some sources for this hesitation to, to sort of put forward a substantive positive vision, which, yeah, in the, in the context of legal scholarship, I think, the sort of liberal um, sort of foundations of of American legal scholarship and and most Western legal scholarship does exactly as you said, which is sort of assume that the law's role is really to provide a set of rules within which otherwise autonomous people can kind of live out their life in whichever way they see fit. And there's a kind of implicit injunction, sometimes an explicit injunction, against law sort of intervening in our lives in a more substantive way, which again, I don't, I don't, I reject that. I mean, I think that's like a, a perfectly, there, there's a lot of wisdom to that perspective. And likewise, I think, you know, some people who work not in a liberal tradition, but in a more radical tradition are really worried about, you know, if we put forward new substantive conceptions of, of how these technologies should be operating, are we going to maybe, you know, inadvertently reinscribe racist or colonial or imperialist or other kinds of oppressive values into these technologies. And so there's a real worry about, I think, normative prescription at all coming from some of those traditions, especially in the surveillance studies literature. And I think those worries are perfectly understandable too. But, you know, for reasons I I sort of lay out in the second part of the paper, I think we should be emboldened and we should sort of even in the face of those kinds of real real concerns work to put forward a substantive vision because the alternative as i suggest in the paper is that we are just beholden to the technology industry's vision for the future and so um, i think if we don't put forward our own alternative conceptions the best we can hope for is a kind of harm reduction and i think that we can do better than that right I, and i i like what you used uh, winner to identify that particular technologies i'll just quote uh, generate specific forms of life by providing structure for human activities, they reshape that activity and its meaning. And as they become woven into the texture of everyday existences, the devices, techniques, and systems we adopt shed their tool-like qualities and become a part of our very humanity. And so I, which is beautifully written, I have to say, but it also goes to like how important it is to be speaking of an alternative vision of like where you think the future should be or what world are you trying to create with the design of this technology, that that's, I like to say, that's where the magic happens is in design and development. And in some ways, kind of harm reduction or mitigation at the end is unsatisfying because it is, it's, it's important and we should still do it. But the, the main idea is like, how would we have done this differently? Because that's actually where the important decisions building on winner, that's where the important decisions are being made. 
Yeah. Isn't that quote so good? He's such yes. a good, good writer. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think there is a, I mean, I, I totally agree with everything you just said. And I mean, I think there's a vein of scholarship in political theory and political philosophy that has of late really sort of focused on the sort of diagnosis of harms and mitigation of harms as sort of a more tractable set of problems that we can deal with and sort of move away from what has traditionally been called sort of ideal theory in politics that tries to put forward these kinds of more substantive positive visions. And I think in certain domains that makes a lot of sense because what we like the urgent problem is just to, you know, create less racist institutions or to create a politics that is less polarizing or something like that. But the thing I take away from Langdon Winner's work, um, from the work of, you know, Phil Ager and other people that I cite in the papers are really classical, you know, texts in science and technology studies, philosophy of technology, is that technologies are, you know, we, we use them in this way that feels like they are just um, sort of enhancing our ability to realize our own ends. But what the scholarship really teaches us, and we have you know decades now of work that really tries to make this argument, and I think makes it really powerfully, is that that's never all that's going on. Technologies are always world building in this way. And I think the language, um, you know, Langdon-Winner takes this language from Wittgenstein of forms of life, the technologies provide a kind of form of life. And what he means is that they structure our activity and the meaning that we imbue that activity with in various different ways that really impacts how we live our lives and experience our lives individually, how we organize socially and collectively. Um, It impacts the kinds of political institutions that we're able to create and maintain. And so because technologies are always already doing that kind of positive, like constructive work in the background, I think it just raises the question for us, if technologies are world building, like what are the worlds that we want our technologies to build? And I think that for most of us, while it's true that we would like them to be less unjust worlds than the ones that we're currently experiencing, I think we want more than that. And, you know, I think we want a more democratic world. I think we want a more egalitarian world. And I think that that requires thinking not just about sort of removing opposition to democratic movements or removing obstacles to egalitarian social relations, but actually like positively building technologies in ways that advance those goals. That's great. Yeah. I I think, um, I think your, your paper is a great call to not only you know, focus, identify what's going on and also why it's wrong. So what, what exactly is going on when we get this instinct that something seems off? And then you, you identify some scholars, like you said a minute ago, like you identify some scholars that are kind of moving in this direction to say, like, what's this alternative vision of what we actually want the technologies to support versus saying, stop doing this, modify this? Yeah, absolutely. There, I, you know, I mentioned a number of folks in the paper who I think are moving in this direction. I think there, you know, there's amazing work by Ruha Benjamin. She has a, an amazing book called Race After Technology, where she advances this vision of tech abolition, which sounds like a purely negative project. But in Benjamin's view, you know, she says something to the effect of abolition is never just about sort of destroying the oppressive system. It's also about envisioning a new one. And I think that that's really crucial. Um, I'm really excited about her new forthcoming book. Um, I think it's coming out like next month or the month after called Viral Justice, where it looks like she's going to be 
engaging in, in that kind of work as well. I'm not sure if this is the point where you want me to sort of name other folks. That oh I yeah, we should. That's we a, that's a that's a good time. That's a good place yeah. to do it. Yeah, that's a, because that's because you name some of them in your paper. Yeah, for sure. So, um, I, you know, another person I mentioned in the paper, um, Salome Villouin, who is a legal scholar at the University of Michigan, I think is doing really amazing work that really reflects, I think, exactly this kind of perspective that we've been talking about. It is on the one hand, a, you know, it produces a critique of the existing order, but then also really tries to push us in the direction of imagining what a new sort of legal order would look like. Salome's focus is on thinking about data, not just as um, sort of about individual people, but rather as a medium for producing social relationships. And in particular, she wants us to think about what it would mean for data to produce more democratic, egalitarian social relationships. And she offers some really useful concepts for thinking that through. Another book that I just have to give a sort of shout out to, James Muldoon has a new book um, called Platform Socialism, which does a really incredible job of thinking about how we can sort of like leverage the kinds of tools and techniques that we have in order to produce a radically different political economic order. And, you know, not everyone is going to be on board with platform socialism. That's you know, it's, it's sort of a contentious <laughs> right, set of political right. views. But even for those people who maybe don't want to take on board all of that politics, as an example of work that can provide just a completely different set of conceptual tools for helping us think through these kinds of questions to sort of build what I, I call in the paper, I take the language from um, Sheila Jasanoff of uh, socio-technical imaginaries. And I, I say that, you know, we need folks to help us develop new socio-technical imaginaries so that we're not kind of beholden to those of Silicon Valley. And so James Muldoon's book, I think, really offers some amazing conceptual tools that helps us think in different ways from the ways that we're used to. I should also just say, because you you brought him up, I mean, I just cannot recommend enough to people who might be listening to this, some of the classics in philosophy of technology and science and technology studies. So, you know, Langdon Winter's book, The Whale and the Reactor, I teach it every semester. And every time I go through it, I like find new stuff that makes me think really hard, even though it was written, um, you know, 40 years ago, Phil Ager's work. And there's also a really great, a really great blog, like Substack, if people are interested in such things by um, Michael Sacassis called The Convivial Society, where he takes a lot of, he's, he's a really wonderful reader of these kinds of classic philosophy of technology writers. And he does really amazing work sort of translating their insights for contemporary problems. So highly recommend that. That's great. That's a great list of people to look for, both both very current and then like the classics. I know I'm going up April Williams's work on reparative algorithms, which is the idea of not just attempting to get to whatever status quo is and not doing further harm, but actually trying to empower people at the margins through the design of your AI. And so there, there is work. Now, she's not in surveillance studies or a PLSC, so, or privacy law scholars, which maybe is to the point that there is, you know, interesting reparative work that's going on where you see a vision of the future and like, how can we actually design our technologies to enact that vision of the future? Because we're, I think the power of Winner and others like Winner, Langdon Winner, is that what he would say probably is that we're doing it anyway. 
And so whether you're thoughtful about it or not, and why don't we just be more thoughtful and manage it in a better way, which is kind of your call to arms for this entire endeavor, which I really liked. I'll, I'll just say this is your words, not Langdon Winners, I think, because I, from their paper, but I'm suggesting that we contemplate new goals in addition to diagnosing and mitigating the risks of data-driven technologies, privacy and surveillance scholars ought to contest the technology industry's vision of the technological future we are striving to achieve by offering competing visions of our own. Um, and I really think that that was a great summary of like the call of a saying kind of, you know, at the end, don't we like kind of push ourselves to come up with what's an alternative vision or what would be the steps of identifying an alternative vision. And so I really, I really thank you for writing it. It was a great piece. Oh, thanks so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to sort of like think through it with me um, and to highlight these pieces. I hope it is. It was meant as a provocation. So I hope it provokes people. Yeah, well, uh, I'm excited to see what it what it yields. Right. Yeah. Well, we might as well amplify the provocation. I always love a good provocation. So thank you very much for coming. Uh, thanks so much, Kirsten. Tech Talks is a production of the Notre Dame Technology Ethics Center. For more, visit techethics.nd.edu.